you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks for being here. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and refer it to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Go to goodreads.com, fortunate Chris Voss. See everything we're reading and reviewing over there. You can also go to youtube.com to see the full video version of this broadcast. You can go to youtube.com, fortunate Chris Voss. See all of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those different places all the crazy kids are playing these days so we're excited to announce my new book is coming out it's called beacons of leadership inspiring lessons of success in business and innovation it's going to be coming out on october 5th 2021 and i'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book it's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories lessons my life and experiences in leadership and character i give you some of the secrets from my ceo entrepreneurial toolbox that he to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book, and for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, Different collectors, limited edition, custom made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold. Today we have an amazing two authors on the show. We got two for the price of one, evidently. And uh, so what we'll be doing is talking to them about this amazing book that they have. It's coming out October 5th, 2021. The title of the book is called The Redemption of Bobby Love, A Story of Faith, Family, and Justice by Bobby Love and Cheryl Love, the authors. This sounds like it should make a really cool movie one of these days. Bobby was born in Greensboro, North Carolina. He is a husband, a father, and a professional cook. He currently splits his time between Brooklyn, New York and the Metro Atlantic or Atlanta era with his wife and children. Cheryl was born in New York. She is a wife, mother, and nutritional coordinator. She currently splits her time between Brooklyn, New York, and the Metro Atlanta area with her husband and children. Welcome to the show, Bobby and Cheryl. How are you? All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Congratulations on the new book. Give us your plugs or uh, places you want people to go uh, buy the book and uh, order it up. You can buy it on Google. Uh, um, Target. Where all your books are sold. Wherever fine books are sold, but only where the fine books are sold, people. Don't buy those books in the alleyway. That's always yeah. bad. Yeah. What motivated you to write this book? Oh, it was my life in the beginning that I just, I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. I had started writing myself that I was going to write my story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
at the beginning, I was not planning on writing any books or anything. I didn't know anything about it. But as time went on, I saw what Bobby was trying. He would write notes and have a note, special notebook writing things down. And I would sneak and read some of it. But I didn't think it was about him, but his life. There you go. Now, this is a really interesting story that people should look into because we're going to find out more. But uh, stay tuned. So give us an arcing overview of the book, if you would. It's about my uh, faith in God. It's about the justice that I feel that when I was in the prison system, it was issues and problems from time to time. And that kind of turned my life to a point of, I want to get out of here. I'm not being treated fairly and all of that that goes with that. There you go. And it's a really interesting journey. You guys have been married for how many years now? 38. 38 years. And I'll give a teaser out. There's a secret that happens in this marriage for quite some time. And it and I believe the secret comes out when the FBI shows up knocking at the door. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And then the secrets unwind. Let's kind of start at the beginning. Let's talk about Bobby and his upbringing. And we'll get into some of what led us down that road. Okay. I was, uh, I was born in Jim Crow South. Not that many opportunities for work and things like that. I'm in school also. There was segregation, desegregation. And um, I, I tried to, the sticks was pulling me. And at 14, went to a concert, my first, very first concert. And um, I said something that I shouldn't have said and got a disorderly conduct charge. Oh, wow. And, and so what happened? I didn't go to the court like I should have. Mm. And so that made the... The truant officers, uh, was, I'm not sure if the truant officers, but made them come to my school. So when they came to my school and brought me home that day, they told my mother, and they said they was going to put me on probation. So that was the start of my, part of my life at that mm-hmm. time. So there's a point where you end up going to jail. What got you into that what you clearly, you know, you had some trouble and we all know what goes on in the South and some of the issues with the Jim Crow era and the high police state they have down there. One of my books I read recently that I recommend everybody read was, uh, oh, it escapes me. Isabel Washington wrote it, I think is the name of the author, but it'll come to me. I think everyone knows it because we've talked about it a lot on the show. So you become a master thief. How does that work out? At that time also, I was, I was, I like to dress, I buy nice clothes. And I didn't have the money to do that, but I found ways. I, you know, I'm kind of, um, I did it, proud of it, but I would, you know, break in people's cars. I would uh, steal from mailboxes. I stole from the kids at, at my gym class when they would, you know, get dressed for gym, and I'd be one of the last ones to leave. I would go in their pockets and steal some money. Mm-hmm. So you're doing what you could to get by, and yeah. you end up going to jail. Uh, how long yeah. were you going to jail for? At that time, I went to jail. I went to a farmer's Marston training school, and uh, I was there, well, I was supposed to be there for about 13 months. Mm-hmm. I, I escaped from there. Uh-huh. So you're only in jail for 13 months. You escaped from jail, and then what do you decide to do? I got to the next town, got me a bus ticket. I had saved my money that I had, and I got back to Greensboro. So I was there for a day. I went to a friend's house, and uh, he gave me some money, and uh, we bought a ticket to Washington, D.C. Mm. 
And so you go to Washington, D.C., and so basically you're on the lam at this point. Is that Do I have that correct? Yes. And then – go ahead. I'm, I'm still a juvenile, mm-hmm. and uh, from, what I'm, from what I was told, the things that they do as a juvenile in Greensboro, unless it's murder, they don't really track you to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I was safe there. Yeah, and there's a lot of mistakes people make in their juvenile teen years, and that's that's a lot of people make a lot of mistakes in those years, and you're still not quite an adult, so you're going through a lot of that. The So do you decide to start a new life? Do you decide to turn over a new leaf, or what happens when you move to Washington, D.C.? For for a while, I was living with my brother, and I was working. Like I said, trouble and states pulling me, and I ended up getting in trouble there. Um, By the way, I got shot in 1969. And so after I was, after I healed and everything like that, I had this case, uh, a robbery charge on me, guilty to that, and I was sent to um, the youth center down in Lawton at the time. I spent 13 months down there. Wow. So at what point do you meet Cheryl and start a new life? Well, I... (laughs) I went to jail again, but I met my wife in 1984. Okay. And and, uh, and were you out of jail? Um, yeah, I was totally, uh-huh. you know, I was, I had a monkey on my back, but I was out of jail. Uh-huh. I had this, I hadn't told anybody and my wife about my past. Absolutely nothing about my past at that time. That was 1977. But wow. I met my I escaped in 1977, but I met my wife in 1984. Okay. And yeah. you've gone to jail, but had the new jails not put together the escape? Is that what it, is that what was the issue that well, came up eventually? They, um, they found out about everything. Yes. So he escaped from juvenile place, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he I did 13 months at, uh, at Lawton. Okay. Then I got the big charge, which was 25 to 30 years in Greensboro for robbery. Oh, wow. Right. Yes. And I was there from 1971 to 1977. Okay. I had became a honor grade inmate, which is a minimum security place that I was at at that time. And I was doing my best. I was. I had a radio show. I would do a tape, send it to Shaw University. I worked in the canteen. So I had a good thing, I think, going on for me as I was approaching my parole date. And uh, everything was going good until some things started to happen. And I was charged with them, you know, doing some things that I shouldn't have been doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, I was working one place. They moved me to another job. They moved me to another mm-hmm. job. And then in the end, they moved me to the road. So when they moved me on the road to be cleaning the, the highways and cutting the grass on the side of the highway and things like that, oh, boy, I just didn't like that. <laughs> you know, I made up my mind. <laughs> I made up my mind. I was going to see if I could make some more changes. There you go. And so you come out, you meet your wife. Now, have you changed your name? At what point did you change your name to Bobby Love? When I first hit New York, I changed my name. I was on the bus. Yeah. And I 
asked me my name and I said Bob. I didn't say love, I just said Bob. And we talked all the way to Pennsylvania. She got off from Philadelphia. I went on to New York. So it wasn't until I went into the Social Security office that I told the lady that my name was Bobby Love. And so you got set up with a Social Security number called Bobby Love? Under Bobby Love? Wow. Wow. It surprised me, too, because I gave (laughs) her a in uh, in Washington, D.C. So I thought she was going to send a card to Washington, D.C., but she gave it there. She gave me the card right on the spot. She just handed it right on the spot. Wow. I'm going to go in and change my name. Bobby Love is a great name. It's probably good for picking up chicks or something. I don't know. I don't know. But so you meet your wife, and you guys are having children, doing the family thing, right? Yes. Yeah. And how many kids did you have and raise? We have four children. Four kids. And yes. so how long are you guys married before – the episode of the FBI shows up and comes knocking. Be thirty-seven years. No, no, maybe thirty-six. Thirty-six right. years. You guys are married. Your wife has no idea, correct? No right. idea. And Bobby, this whole. I'm sorry. What was that, Cheryl? <laughs> I had some feeling there was something with him, uh-huh. but I didn't, I had no idea of this. I always felt it was something going on with him that he was keeping from me. Mm-hmm. So, so Bobby, one, one thing that people have when they keep secrets is it can tear them up inside because they're holding something. Did you feel like you were holding a secret or did you know this was such a big deal that the FBI would show up? Did What did you think? You just think you maybe left your past behind and, and that was buried and done with? Extent, um, I'm pretty sure I didn't go places where trouble could start. Hmm. Um, I made sure that I kept myself in a kind of a manner that wasn't doing anything that, that, that would attract the police to me or to my house. There was always having police coming there for certain things. I was living a real straight life. Yeah. So you're, you could call it maybe reformed, maybe, or you're just keeping your head I, down. I rehabilitated myself. There you go. Of what I was doing. I worked a couple of jobs. I used to get up at 3.30 in the morning to be in the Bronx at 6 o'clock to cook. Wow. And, uh, so you're working hard for your family. You're being a good provider as a husband and father. And, yeah. and, and so it, it sounds like it was prescient in your mind that you left your things behind. You were worried about maybe the past coming up. What? Tell us about the episode of where the FBI knocks at the door. I haven't had that yet. And I'm making I, I really don't want that yet but so there's still time so, so tell us what that experience is like because i think the listeners would be interested set up my bed was in the living room i have four children three of them were still at home so gave my daughter the back bedroom my other son stayed in the next room and then my wife and then my other son stayed in the next room then it was myself and my wife mm-hmm. so when the knock came it was a very loud knock and I thought who is not who would knock on this door like this so it had to be somebody for the next door not my door and the wife ended up shouting who is that? <laughs> who is and because I was making a cup of tea and not expecting anybody to be knocking on the door like that and so when they knocked I went I opened the door and to my surprise FBI New York NYPD guns drawn guns drawn guns drawn and they came in and they're like, man, move that. You don't know who this person is. And I'm like, I don't know who this is. What are you talking about? And I'm like, Bobby, 
Bobby, what's going on? I said to him, I said, did you kill somebody? What's happening? It was a mess. It was a mess. And I can still hear that officer saying, stand back and you don't know who this is. Wow. And I'm Bobby and his head is down. He's not looking at me, Chris, nothing. Just no, he's just holding his head down. What's happening here? This man's not looking at me. And I'm like, looking for it. And the guy's just like, stand back, man. You don't know who this is. And honestly, Chris, I knew in my heart, okay, this is what I've been feeling all the oh, time. Oh, crap. I'm getting ready to find out what it is. This wow. is it. This and is you've it. been married for 38 years at this point? or Yeah. We, okay. So we just turned thir- 38 years now. So that was about two, two okay. years. No, more than two years ago. 2016, right? 2015. About six years ago, roughly. And, and Bobby, what's going through your head at this point? I'm ashamed. I'm feeling bad. Actually, I'm holding my head down because the thing she had said, and she's asking me certain stuff, and I can't answer. Only thing I said is, this was before you. Yeah, he did say that. And the cops were like, you had a good run. <laughs> and... Um, he said, I, I, I just, huh? He said, also, your real name. What's your real yeah, name? Yeah, he asked me my name. Uh-huh. First, I said, Bobby Love. That wasn't going to get it with him. He said, tell me your real name. So I said, Walter Curtis Miller. And you had a good run. Wow. So they looked at me, and Cheryl was asking, I think she was asking me at that time, and she was telling them, that I was a diabetic, but they told her that they was going to have to arrest me, mm-hmm. that I was being arrested for escaping from 1977. No, they didn't tell them. They didn't they, say it right there. They just went, they was just taking away. And I'm like, what's going on? And they said, he's getting, we have to arrest him. We have to take him away. And I'm like, oh my God, he's a diabetic. He hasn't taken his medicine again. You can imagine tears. The kids are crying. I'm crying. Um, we didn't know what was going on. And so I I had these chocolate chip cookies and the officer's still trying to hold me back. But I'm like, yeah, he only take these cookies, eat this cookie. And I didn't say, he needs his jacket. And they're still trying to hold me back. And I'm trying to, I'm just acting like they're not there. And getting the jacket and giving him, he needs his jacket. And so they let him put that on. They sort of leave the lady alone. And they took me, took him out. And they arrested him, like they put the handcuffs on him outside, outside of the house there. This is extraordinary. For a juvenile escape, mm-hmm. that's just, like, seriously, doesn't the FBI have something better to do? I'm watching Southern Poverty Law Center and, and, and different things that are going on in this country. Like, this seems like the last thing we really need to be working on. I should. We've had several FBI people on the show. We should probably ask the next time. Is this really necessary? One of them, uh, one of them would tell me when I was, they was driving me, because they took me to one center street first down there for processing. So as we're in the car and I'm sitting in the back seat, one of the guys is sitting next to me and the two guys in front. The guy said, man, we watched you for the last month. <laughs> we sat on you. They start, yeah, they saw me go to the store. They saw me go out with my kids. They saw me go up and down the block doing things like that. But they said, we really didn't want to uh, arrest you. <laughs> I don't know if he was you know, joking, or, but this is what he said. And then he said, your story is so incredible. You should write a book. You should write a book. 
Yes, he told me that. But also, they said that we'll let your children, especially my daughter, let them know where you're going and if you move from place to place or where you will be, they can come see you. So I said, thank you for that. So they took me to, to uh, Bellevue. So at Bellevue, that's when they get asked me for my medications and stuff like that because I'm a diabetic, high blood pressure and stuff like that, cholesterol. So they would get all my medication corrected. And they gave me a dose of my medication there. They gave me something to eat because I hadn't had anything to eat. So I ate some sugar so I wouldn't get hypoglycemic. And uh, then they took me to this place in 1 Center Street. It was old because they put me on suicide watch. They took my shoestrings. They took my belt. Anything that I, they thought that I might try to you know, hurt myself. And I stayed down there for about two hours or something, in the freezing cold. And finally, last they came around and took me to another part of the building. And how old are you at this point? I was 60. This is extraordinary. <laughs> you seem like you're trouble now. It's probably good they took you in. Seriously, 60. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell, man? Like such a waste of dollars. And this is this is insane. I, I got a book out of it. Maybe. I don't know. That's one way of looking at it. The, so what happens next? What sort of process do you go through? <clears throat> okay. I was there till about 2 o'clock in the morning at that place. Then when they finally last, went upstairs to, to the court. And the court is, I met my lawyer. She told me that I'm going to be sent to Rikers Island. She says, no air from answer about, about that. Rikers? And, uh, yeah. Rikers. A 66-year-old man going to Rikers. Yeah. So they said to um, my my lawyer said to me, she said, listen, I'm going to come and see you and have you brought back, I think that Tuesday. This was a Thursday that they arrested me. So I got to Rackers that Friday. My kids and my wife came to see me that Saturday. And then I waited to that Tuesday when I talked to my lawyer. So now she's telling me that there's no way I'm going to get out. She said, the only way you can get out if the governor don't sign the papers, the warrant for you to be sent to North Carolina. She said, but I'm sure he's going to sign it. So I said, okay. But I was back and forth there for a minute, going to court, coming back, going to court, coming back. And I stayed at Rackers until June. Oh, wow. Yeah, I stayed at Rackers until June. This was January. I stayed in Rackers to June. I told them after a while, I kept going back and forth and nothing was happening. So I, I just told my lawyer, I said, listen, let them know that I'm ready to go back to North Carolina. Wow. And, uh, I went back to North Carolina. And I got there, and I stayed there at Central Prison, maximum security, until I think it was early in July. And then in July, I was shipped out to a road camp. So at the road camp, I'm just reading the Bible, going to church. Uh, Finally, I got some money, and I would start calling my family. Mm -hmm. So... First time I called them, I could hear all the background and everything like that. They were so happy right. that I could make phone calls now. Because we hadn't heard anything from him. Um, yeah, and your family stuck back in New York. We're, New York, and, and you're in North Carolina, so they can't come visit you. He didn't really no, want us to I come here. I, I didn't he, want them to come here. Oh, okay. 
come. We're going to get on a bus and we're coming no. down here. And he said, no, Cheryl. We'll yeah. just talk over the phone. I don't want you guys coming down here. So we didn't, but we made sure we got our calls. We spoke on the phone every day, that kind of thing. And the lawyer that he had down in North Carolina had said to us, we're going to try and get him out by writing these letters. We want you to get letters from everybody. And so that's what we did. We did the legwork, getting letters written from the church, people in the church, my pastor, people in the church, some of the members in the church. Bobby had been a coach. Like I said, Bobby had been working two and three jobs that we asked his bosses, his coach, I'm sorry, people who he coached with and asked them to write letters. And they gave us letters. And I said, of his character, how he has been with you. So that's what they did. And we had got so many letters from family and friends. I even wrote President Obama and said, my husband has changed himself around. He's not that same person that he was back then. In all those years, a good citizen. He's been, he's working. He's been, he's a Sunday school teacher. He went, became a deacon at that time. All of that, everything. And yeah, it, it, it was rough. It's some journey. So how long were you in jail to to go through this process? Do they resend you at all? Or do they just try and force you to cover the time of what you missed from your escape? How does that all work? Okay, I got back down. I got to Spruce Pines. And like my wife said, first of all, I just want to let you know this. My lawyer was very negative about what's going to happen. He told me, don't get your hopes up too high because usually the first time a person that does the things that I did, they don't get out. They don't get paroled. That's not going to happen. So I wrote him back and told him, keep your negative comments to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm going home. That's the, I was I was very sure that I was going home. When I was still at Central, before I went to Spruce Pines, <clears throat> I met some of the people, the captains and the, and, the, and the people that was in charge of the whole prison system. They would come through there, and they sat me down and they asked me questions. And I told them what I had been doing in this whole time. I told them about my family. I told them about my four children. And I bring them out of my cell and just have a conversation about me and asking me these questions. So I told them everything. And uh, you had no desire to get in trouble? You got? Did you ever get in any trouble that you got away with anything? I said, no, I got no trouble. So I think those conversations with those people, I can't call their names, but they were some high officials in the North mm-hmm. Carolina system. And they asked me these questions. So I went back to my cell and the next thing I know, they woke me up at 5 o'clock in the morning and told me I was being shipped to Bruce Pines. So I went there, and when I got there, I just started to go to church and watch TV. I had no desires to go outside because, I don't know, some of the guys, if I went out there and played some basketball, I don't know what might happen because I did see some fights out there, guys playing basketball. So I just made it a point of mostly being my, by myself there. Yeah. And then when they told me that I was going to go up for pro, they told me that in July, that I was going to go up for parole in October. I just said, October come, I'm going home. And that's mm-hmm. what I believe. And sure enough, right there before Thanksgiving, I got a, one of the guys, one of the guards told me that I was wanted over there at the, at the gym. So I go to the gym and this counselor told me that we just got word that you made parole. I said, wow, okay, okay. This was two weeks before Thanksgiving. 
So I'm thinking I'm going to go home by Thanksgiving. No. Then I waited. I called my wife, and they knew they knew already. Okay. So then came Christmas. I said, I definitely got to be home by Christmas. No. So then <laughs> I found out I was scheduled to leave on January the 5th. Wow. Wow, yeah. So anyway, I, I just waited for that day. I stayed in my cell and just waited for that day. And then I find out that they were supposed to drive me to another city where there was the bus station. But they started to move me too late. The bus had already left for New York. <laughs> so now they got to drive me to Durham. That's where the next bus is. And they call the bus station and everything like that. Make sure that this bus has a seat for me. So then when we get our way to Durham, one, one policeman took, one, one guard took me to Durham. So when we get to Durham, I find out that they overpaid, overpaid, sorry, overpaid for my ticket. I'm a senior. <laughs> so they gave me the, the difference of my ticket, you know. So I did have some cash. So I waited for that ticket that night. And um, finally, last, I got, I, excuse me, I got the ticket. I waited for the bus for that night and um, on to New York. So uh, I'm on this bus and I travel all during the night and I got to New York about eight something or so mm-hmm. the next day. My family was there at the <laughs> stop in Brooklyn waiting for me. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yes. This is an extraordinary story. And as far as I'm concerned, it, yeah. it really highlights the abuses that are in our industrial prison complex system. We really have a, a horrible system. Like I've had friends that have gotten out on parole and just the system is built to sustain itself and make money. In fact, most of the lobbying that goes on to keep the decriminalization of marijuana and keep criminal statutes in place are supported by prison unions because it's all about jobs and money and don't even get me started on private prisons. But you go through this extraordinary thing. You finally get out on parole. Does life go back to normal? At what point do you decide to write the book? Um, there was a, okay, I moved in with my daughter and her husband. So we're living with them. My other children are still in the other apartment where I lived before. <clears throat> Excuse me. My son-in-law meets the man that's across the hall from me. and He's now our manager. Yeah, he's our manager now. <laughs> The person that contacted you about this podcast. But anyway, yeah, so he's our manager now. So they got together and they started talking. My son-in-law tells John, my manager, about me, and they Googled me and found out everything about me. And he said, uh, met me and we went to dinner, and he talked about everything that he could do in terms of writing a book. He said, man, your story, man, I'm telling you, man, people want to read that. And uh, I said, okay. And then uh, the next week, I met the man from Humans of New York, Brandon Stanton. Mm-hmm. And um, we did an interview. He came to see me that Thursday. Then <laughs> he said that he wanted to see and meet. My wife wasn't home at that time when he did the story. So... That Saturday, he came back and he interviewed my wife. Now, I'm sorry to say, but 
Kobe Bryant had passed during this yeah. time. So Brandon said he wants to wait until all of the stuff with Kobe because he was dominating the news so much. And he didn't want the story that he had just written about me to fall into the you know wayside, more or less. So he went to Jamaica, Brandon did. And they had, I don't know, 15-day holiday or something like that. But when he got back, he contacted me and he said that I'm going to start I'm going to start putting the story out that he had written from Humans of New York. He sent us stuff first, just us exclusive. And then he started to release it into his, you know, project in Humans of New York. And uh, people started reading it. I got phone calls from people that knew me. I got phone calls from my relatives. They said, one, of my, one of my nephews, he said to me, he said, you know, they talking about you on this, this thing of humans in here. I said, no. <laughs> but it just, it just took off from the beginning. And wow. uh, yeah, it just, and my wife. And mind you, I don't. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> I was like, "No way! What? No, mm-mm. honey, I will be with you if you go. I'm not gonna go on any shows with you, but I'll be in. I'll be in the background somewhere. But <laughs> you don't. Uh, uh-uh, I don't want to be involved. So. so, was there ever a reading him the Riot Act, Cheryl, when you got back, where you gave him the? I don't know. You can load it on him and let him have a piece of your mind. Was and, that in the- oh my gosh! Let me tell you, at the beginning. Chris, I was telling you, I was not thinking about anything because I was nervous. I didn't know how Bobby was feeling the way they had took him out of the house that day. I'm thinking, I don't know what he will do. This was quite, this is overwhelming. And he, I I thought maybe, I was thinking, was he going to commit suicide? I thought that. I thought, I don't want him to think that I'm leaving him. I'm not, I wasn't thinking like that. My heart wasn't even with myself, honestly. I was thinking about him more. And the kids said to me, we with you, we with you, whatever you feel. And I said, we're with him. I just want him to know that I'm not going to leave him. I'm with you. And so he called me from Bellevue. He was able to call me. And when he called, he said, Michelle, I said, where are you? Are you all right with that? He said, I'm okay. He said, they gave me my medicine. I just want to tell y'all, they're going to take Chris. I said, oh, my goodness. No, he didn't say that. He said, they gave me my medicine and everything. I said, okay, but where are you going? He said, I'm not really sure right now. I don't know. I sent you a book, and I think that's what he said. I said, okay. He said, but when I find something out, I'll let you know. I said, I just want to let you know, honey. I love you and that me and the kids are with you. I said, I'm not leave. I'm not going to leave you. I'm with you, okay? And he was like, oh, all right. But he was sounding like really, he was sounding to me faint. I don't know how I sounded, if I was sounding panicky or what, but I just wanted him to know at that time, I'm with you. I'm with you, okay? That's a beautiful story. This is a story about love and redemption. And I don't think most wives would stick with a guy through this. But you were married for a long time. But still, I think most wives are like... uh, This is the thing. all All those years, he hadn't done anything bad. And I wasn't looking for anything bad in my husband. I just knew there were times that... He would shut down. It was some things that I thought was a little strange, like he didn't like to take pictures. But then I said, yes, other people like to take pictures. So I I left it alone. He was not hitting me. He was not hurting me. I mean, we enjoyed, we had good times. We had bad times. 
But it was a marriage. And I had been in church since a little girl. So my faith was very strong in God. And the way I had saw my parents grow up, and I saw how they worked things out, they worked things through. So I guess that's what I saw. And I, I wanted my marriage like that also. So I, I just... I, Probably I just, important. Probably an important lesson for people these days because uh, yeah. nowadays people just give up. It's almost easier to give up than to try. So beautiful story, love, redemption, family. You go through all this. As we go out, what, give us maybe one or two things you guys hope people take from buying the book and reading it. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that it can help people in a way that, well, I've heard some people say that uh, there was one guy in particular, my son responded to him, but his comment was, this story, he read this story from Humans of New York, just the Humans of New York. He, so he hasn't read the book because the book was still being written at that time. And that was a guy that said this story from Humans of New York helped him mm-hmm. to work on his marriage. That my story brought him back to helping and doing, doing more to build his marriage. He said, I was, I've been doing, he didn't say exactly what, but he wasn't living like he should be living with his wife and maybe children. But he said, yeah, man, he said, your story was a real inspiration to me to do things better in my life. This is the real beautiful part about people telling the stories is there's a lot of people going through similar journeys and they learn from them. Cheryl? I was going to say, I hope that they can take from it, be truthful with yourself or your partner, because I know that even writing a book, helped me therapeutically. It was very therapeutic. It made you go back down memory lane and say, oh, okay, I remember that. And I remember when that happened and this is why it happened. So never give up. Don't give up on your person, your loved one, because you never know what happened or what could be going on in their life. And don't be isolated. Don't hold things back. And you know what? Forgive. You have to forgive. Because if you don't forgive, you become bitter. And that's exactly what I did not want in our relationship, for us to be bitter. And so we have to forgive. That's a beautiful lesson. I love that. I think more people these days need to know that. So thank you very much, Bobby and Cheryl, for being on the show. We certainly appreciate it. It's an extraordinary story. There's a lot of books on the shelf, but this is really unique. So people should definitely pick it up. Give us your plugs so people can find you on the interwebs or order up the book. Okay. We're at very technical, but <laughs> I think you have some Instagram accounts that people want to look them up. Oh, we, have, uh, we have um, Bobby the, the Redemption of Bobby Love mm-hmm. and we have Bobby Love Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I think those are the two. And, and those are on Instagram? Yeah. John, what's that Bobby Love story? He wants the Instagram account. Oh, okay. Can we email it to you, Chris? Yeah, sure. We'll put okay. a link on the Chris Foss show. It'll be a link there for our audience. Yeah, we still, yeah. yeah. I didn't want to interrupt the recording. I think I can give it to you, though. Sure, yeah. If you want to call it out, we'll take it. Oh, it's Bobby and Cheryl Love. Dot com? No, no. So there's no website. This is just the Instagram. Oh, the Instagram. Okay. Bobby and Cheryl Love, and you can get updates on their Facebook at the, the Bobby Love Story. 
There you go. Thank you very much, both of you, for uh, coming on, sharing your incredible journey, and I hope it helps everyone else. It's a very touching story. Touch me a little bit. I love the ending and the lesson that you gave there, both of you. So thank you very much for being on the show and spending time with us today. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And thanks, Amanis, for tuning in. Order up the book. It's going to be out October 5th, 2021, The Redemption of Bobby Love, A Story of Faith, family and justice you want to definitely order that baby up share it with your friends and everything and remember there's a christmas coming up soon buy five or ten you can give them away as gifts to everybody you got to get that whole christmas business going these days because it will be october yeah so thanks to everyone for being on the show thanks for listening uh be sure to go to goodreads.com for just chris foss hit uh go to youtube.com for just chris foss Google, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok. We're at all those places. Go see all the groups of the Chris Voss Show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Be good to each other, and we'll see you guys next time. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, different collectors, limited edition, custom made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold.